Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. Everybody, welcome to Indie Game Business. I'm Jay Powell, CEO of the Powell Group and founder of Indie Game Business. Indie himself is recovering right now from his 12 days of Indie. So if you were on our channel and we just suddenly cut away from that, uh, my bad. We'll go back to that as soon as we're done. But he's raising money out there for Toys for Tots. And so I'm, I'm going to be in charge again today. Uh, with us today, we've got Tom Young from Nomad Games. And we're going to be talking all about the work that you do bringing the board games that we love to digital so we can play them during the pandemic. That's yeah, um, it's, a, it's a nice time to be in the business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you timed that really well. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into the industry, your journey to this point, and then we'll get into a little bit about, you know, what you do with what Nomad does in general. Sure. Uh, well, I'll start with the sob story first, uh, which is the fact that I was in a job that I didn't really like, uh, wasn't really enjoying it, and had a terrible boss. And then I had quite a serious cancer scare. And I realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't the career that I wanted to have, and it wasn't where I wanted to be. So I took a step back, looked at what I wanted to do, and went, you know what? Games is what I love. Games is where I want to be, and that's what I'm going to have to do. So from there, I went to a company called GSN Games. They do social casino stuff. Um, that was really my foot up into the industry. Um, great company to work with based in London. Um, loads of lovely people there, and it really helped me like get to grips with, okay, this is what it's like to be in the games industry. Uh, and then from there, I got made redundant, uh, which is always fun. Uh, and I moved on to then Nomad Games, which is where I currently am. And they were nice enough to take me on. And it's been great ever since. Tell me a little bit about what, I mean, Nomad is a very specific publisher. Tell us a little bit about what you all publish at, at Nomad and why you chose this segment. So at Nomad, uh, we were formed out of a bunch of people who used to work at big AAA studios. And they realized that they'd been getting tossed around the industry for years. And they're like, you know what? We can do this better. We can sort our own company out and do this how we want it. So you had a bunch of people who liked video games and worked in the games industry, but they also really liked board games. So they were like, well, let's start making some games and see where we go. And the first game that they made was Talisman Digital Edition. Uh, so that was a old board game from the eighties, uh, loads of really hardcore fans after um, people just love Talisman. So they made that, it was really successful. Like they really hit gold with Talisman. We're like, oh, okay, well, you know, this is good. Let's carry on working on Talisman. It's loads of expansions. So they kept doing that. Eventually, they ran out of expansions. And they're like, okay, what do we do next? Well, we've kind of got the hang of this whole digital board game thing. Like, we've done well. Let's give it another go. So then we started making more digital board games. Like, we started to gain a bit of a reputation for, you know, if you want a digital board game and you have a physical game that you want transformed into a digital version, no matter the people that you should be talking to. So we worked on stuff like 
um, Cat Lady, Mystic Veil, more up and coming, um, smaller board games. Uh, and our most recent project, Fury of Dracula. Uh, that's another old games workshop board game. It's been around since like the 80s. Uh, but they came to us and they were like, look, we're happy to trust you with this because we know that you do digital board games well. You understand the limitations and the benefits of bringing a board game to digital. So we're happy to trust you with that. So that's how we've sort of ended up as, you know, do what you know, right? Like, we know how to take board games and turn them into um, digital versions. Like our lead designer, Carl, whenever we get approached about a board game, he will sit down with it and be like, okay, I need to play through this for like the next three days so I can start to visualize how this would work digitally. So I'd like to think we know our stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those things that I think we, as, a, as the game industry, get a lot of flack from our family and friends. And it's like, all you do is play video games all day. And I'm sitting here yep. going, I wish the hell all I did was play video games all day. <laughs> but that doesn't really happen. But you're in a space where you really, not all day, but literally you have to play these games to get an understanding of how it's going to convert. I mean, yeah, 100%. Biggest challenge that you've come across in trying to make that adaptation? So, some of the common things that we come across when look, turning a video game from a physical board game to a digital board game is like, how common is it when you're playing a physical board game to notice that, oh, two turns ago, I completely forgot to do this thing that I was meant to do? Because I'm trying to keep track of the rules, but it's hard to keep track of everything at once. It's all right, I can just go back and fix it. Because the digital board game needs to know exactly what you're doing and the rules are set in stone, sometimes things that you can just sort of gloss over with a physical game, they actually become quite hard sticking points um, when you're converting it to digital. That's one of the things that... I actually have got to where I enjoy because it is. I mean, it, one of the things that the dig digital has brought to everybody is one: we we don't have to necessarily be in the same room to play these things anymore. Mm -hmm. But two, some board games are so ridiculously complex that it's easier <laughs> to learn it. Watching someone on YouTube or playing a digital version. I mean, I'll confess when my son got into Pokemon, I learned how to play a Pokemon card game with the app, not yep. sitting down and, and doing the instructions. And I think that's a very, you know, viable alternative. Yeah. Like there's upsides and downsides to it, right? Like if you're playing the digital version, you know, for a fact, you're not, cause you're not allowed to get it wrong. Right. Like you can't break the rules because the game will just say, hang on, you're trying to move your chess piece 10 moves ahead that you really shouldn't be able to. We're not going to let you do that. Whereas with a physical game, you know, you're never 100% sure whether or not you're actually playing it as it should be, um, which can have its benefits because, you know, I've played plenty of games where after the game's finished, we've realized that a rule should have actually gone. <laughs> we've just played that completely. We managed to play the game somehow, but I have no idea how. <laughs> I've done that as well. It's like, this seems kind of overpowered or game breaking. Oh yeah, that's because it's not even in the... Yeah. In the <laughs> that seems a little bit OP. Uh, so you, you've done work with Warhammer and uh, Final... Not Final... I always want to call it Final Fantasy. Fighting. <laughs> Fighting Fantasy, yes. Yeah. The, there's one more that I'm missing. Who's the other one? It seems like there was a third one. Because it's My Talisman, Talisman Warhammer, Fighting Fantasy, uh, Mystic Veil, Fury of Dracula. Put me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> You're just the marketing specialist, Tom. Don't worry about it. Yeah, You're... exactly. Like it's, um, it's my job to know all the games. Why would I know all the games? <laughs> so... How do you go about, I mean, are there things that make certain board games 
more palatable to the digital space? Or how do you go about looking and, and figuring out? And we've already got questions coming in too. So yeah, yeah. Mine first because I'm selfish. How do you figure <laughs> out? Which I mean, there's there's a lot of things to consider for us because when it comes down to it, you're going to have two separate demographics, really. You're going to have people who have played the board game before, so they already know what's up. And you have people that have never played the board game ever. So we really need to consider those two demographics when we're evaluating a game, thinking about how it will transition to digital. Um, so, for example, there's loads of tabletop games that are based on bluffing and reading cues from your opponents. When you turn that into a digital version, you lose that entirely, right? Like, unless you go through a lot of effort to make sure that that's still recreated somehow in the game, you're losing that feeling of, I'm sitting across the table from you, and I can tell what you have in your hand because you have a terrible poker face. <laughs> You don't need to have a good poker face if you're playing against someone online. Um, games that require a lot of bookkeeping uh, and games that require a lot of, you know, things that will automatically trigger off other events, they tend to transition really well to digital because you get a lot of people who have played the physical board game. They really like it. But every time they look at their board game shelf, they're like, oh, but I'm gonna have to set up like all those pieces. I'm gonna have to like get all the little miniatures out. Like the token's gonna go everywhere. Whereas digital version, you can just press a button and it's there, right? Like there's a reason that Tabletop Simulator is really popular because it does a lot of that for you. There's no need to look at, okay, I need to make sure I've got all the different cards, but these cards are different from these cards and these cards are slightly different. It eliminates so much of the faff. So in some ways, more complicated board games actually work quite well for a transition. Um, it does mean that we have to take it into account for those new players who never played the board game. Um, so we'll generally put in quite detailed tutorials where will walk you through um, like a regular turn. Um, and that's another benefit that we have over physical board games is that a lot of physical board games will come with like a 10 page manual that you have to leaf through. And a lot of it is dependent on, okay, well, you know, you gain 10 stat points, which then means you get extra trees. And you're like, well, why do I get extra trees? Well, you get extra trees, which means that you get more water. I'm like, well, why do I need water? And it because it's all linked together, like those resource management games. Once you put that digitally, it's so much easier. Like it takes out so much the calculation. Like our friends um, over at Monster Couch um, just put out the digital version of Wingspan, uh, and oh, yes. I will always play that over the physical version because the amount of like, okay, so this leads into this, which gives me this resource. I need to count that up. Like that's too much for me to track on a table. But when it's all digital, I'm like, oh, okay, I can see this a lot easier now. It's a lot easier to visualize. So you brought up a good point and I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about it or not, but since you opened the gate, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it out there. Go for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> Tabletop simulator. I mean, is that a a threat or an opportunity to to what you all and what what the other companies do in this space? I mean, it depends how you look at it, really, because tabletop simulator, by its very nature, because it's simulating everything, is way more fiddly than any dedicated game is ever going to be. And also Tabletop Simulator is a lot more invested in simulating the tabletop to a degree that, you know, is accurate to what you would actually get on a table, which has its benefits and has its downsides. Like I was just talking about how uh, a game might be really fiddly um, and really faffy. That still kind of comes through if you're playing a tabletop simulator version because you're having to simulate all the different things. Whereas in a digital version, it's like, oh, okay, well, I know the game can handle this really well. I know that the games can handle rules. I know it can do all that. 
it's just a bit of a smoother experience. And I think as well, something that we do take into account is, you know, if a load of people are playing a tabletop game on tabletop simulator, that's a really good metric to view, like, is an audience there? Like, is are people does is there an appetite for this game on people's computers? That because I, I didn't realize tabletop simulator doesn't do like you say all the fiddly stuff that goes along with it because that I mean that is even something as simple as Munchkin you need a calculator half the time to <laughs> how many bonuses you have and. Mm-hmm. All this other stuff, and so uh, that that's that was interesting because I didn't really. I, I assumed if you bought whatever on Tabletop Simulator, it figured out all that rule crap for you. I, I'm I'm think I think there is some degree of automation, but not as much as you'd get in like a dedicated port. All right, so uh, first question is uh, coming in from Punk the Studios over on Twitch. How many projects do you typically work on simultaneously at Nomad? So typically we're only really, most of the time we're working on one at once, like actively developing it Um, because we have a couple of games that we will continue to support. Like Talisman's one of our biggest games and we're continuously developing new stuff for it in the background. Um, But here at Nomad, we've got a team of like 20 people total so if we're developing a, developing a game like Fury of Dracula, we need the majority of our team on that. We don't have the resources to send some people off to develop a second game. So majority of the time, we're working on one game. Uh, when it gets to a point like now, we've literally just released a game yesterday. So we have a couple of people who are working and starting to work on our next project, which is still super secret, so I can't talk about it. <laughs> but we obviously still have the majority of the team um, working on Fury of Dracula because we want to, you know, it's not like the 90s anymore where you can just release a game and be like, all right, it's done now, sorted. Like, as soon as we finish the game, as soon as we release it, it's ongoing support. It's fixing any bugs that come up it's looking at new features so yeah hope that answers your question and i can't tell you about the super secret project before you ask (laughs) by the end of the day don't worry about it um so the follow-up question is what is the average length of the projects when you're doing these conversions uh so i'd say the average length is about a year Um, It can vary depending on how complicated the game is and how many features we want to put in there. But I'd say the average length, if I had to say it, was be a year. That's actually longer than I I thought it would be. But uh, all right. So Olivier from uh, Twitch as well says, when you work with these studios, do they give you any visual assets? So Mm -hmm. that goes into a broader question. You know, typically when you work with these games, what how much is given to you to work with and how much do you have to create yourself? So they're normally quite good about it. Uh, They'll normally give us a link to either a Google doc or something along those lines that is just a dump of raw assets. Uh, Because obviously they have artwork that needs to get sent to the printers and they have key art that they've used in their own marketing they normally have a quite a wide range of assets. So for example, um, with Fury of Dracula, Games Workshop have been really good about just, here's the highest resolution of absolutely everything that we have go nuts, um, which is really good because it means that we can adjust what they give us. Um, normally we'll get it approved if we're doing any major adjustments, um, but most of the time, because it's in their interest for the game to look good, right? They're more than happy to hand over loads of assets and give us everything that they can. Even if they don't think that we'll need it, they'll still hand it all over. Like we've got loads of Photoshop files that are just the artwork that appears on like the tiny little tokens. We're like, well, we probably don't need that, but thanks. 
But with anything, and I've done a lot of stuff over the years with licensed IP and, and stuff like that as well, that the more the merrier. You mean you'd rather have oh, yeah. much than turn around and somebody you're like, oh, but we don't have the art for for XYZ or you know this in there. So that's a that's a good thing. Mm, yeah, for sure. So obviously 2020 has been a bit different for all of this. I mean, for the last four or five years, we've been seeing this big renaissance of of board games. I mean, and it's gone be far beyond the typical family games that you know folks like you and I had growing up and now it's like really, really complex stuff. So how had that, how much influence did that initial renaissance have? Were the board game companies not concerned that people would just buy the digital versions and never buy the board games again? I mean, I think most of the time they see it as two separate audiences that don't really cannibalize each other, to be honest, like, there, and even for the amount that they do possibly cannibalize each other, it still feeds into each other more than you'd think. So, for example, with Fury of Dracula, um, I've seen a huge number of reviews and comments already from people who are saying, look, if you want to check out the board game, but you're not sure you're ready to commit to like, the I think it's like 50 quid now for the physical game, and plus it takes up space on your shelf, right? If you're not ready to commit to that, try the digital version. See if you like it. Like it's a more easy in to getting that board game than just straight up ordering the physical version. And I think also that kind of plays into, we're talking about the board game renaissance. Like I know 2020 has been horrible for it, but board game cafes have really risen up like especially here in the uk they've just popped up everywhere and it's a bit sad because you can't really go to them now um but that desire to be able to try before you buy is still very much there i think and digital board games give you a way to do that so uh, another question from punk the studios do they do the board game developers usually approach you for new projects, vice versa? How are these things generally worked out and sorted out? It's a bit of both. Um, so the person who sorts out all of our collaborative deals uh, is Don, our CEO. He's got like years and years of experience in the industry. Like I'm always amazed that every single time I I'm like, oh, Don. I'd like to talk to someone from this company or this games studio. Don always knows someone. He's that kind of guy that always knows someone. So he tends to be the one that talks to all of his contacts, see what's going on in the industry, um, and generally puts the feelers out for anyone that's working on a physical board game, anyone that's looking to get their game transitioned to digital. And then the conversation will begin in terms of, okay, like, is there going to be a revenue split? Um, what can we do to promote the digital game with the physical game? Uh, and he'll work out all of the nitty gritty um, of that, which it depends on who we're talking to. Um, if we're talking to a smaller, more independent board game um, designer, chances are they'll be more than happy to be like, okay, we can hash this out fairly quickly. There's a lot of board games that have a lot of licenses involved. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but so our biggest game at the moment is Talisman. And they've released Star Wars Talisman and Batman Talisman. And as soon as they, they appeared, I was like, oh my God, I want to make Star Wars Talisman. I want to do all the marketing for that. That sounds amazing. But trying to work out the rights oh. with <laughs> Disney and all that sort of stuff, I was like, oh that's probably going to be a massive faff. So <laughs> but, but that's it the way it is with, with any license. I mean, it's, it's absolutely the, the bigger you go, the harder it is. And the more people that are involved. And then if you want to add another layer of complexity, it's like, Oh, you want Luke Skywalker in it and you need Mark Hamill's mm -hmm. face. Well, congratulations. Now you have to deal with Mark Hamill's people. In addition yeah. to Disney and, and everyone else, it gets ridiculously crazy. So yeah. I mean, 
you're it's just awesome because you're like answering all my questions before I even <laughs> um, what have you seen that works and doesn't work when it comes to that cross marketing? Because I mean, we saw years ago when the first successful thing that I saw along these lines was uh, Ticket to Ride from Asmodee. And, mm -hmm. and I bought it on my iPad like immediately. And, and they did an article later and they were like, we actually use the digital side to test new expansions before we, we print them. And they do a whole lot of cross marketing and that sort of stuff too. So, I mean, question one is, is what sort of cross marketing works? What doesn't work? And then we'll get into the, the test bed area of it as well. Sure. I mean, for us, the most obvious thing to do, and it's the thing that comes to mind immediately is put a little thing in the box yes. that says, hey, come and check out the digital version. Like, it's not always easy to get. No, that's not because, you know, they have all these kind of printing processes. Like you have stuff where the rule book gets printed in one country and then all of the components get printed in another country and they get all shipped to another country to get put together. And it's like, okay, well, how do we fit in that? We just want to put a little piece of paper in your box. So it can be tough to make that happen, but it's the most obvious. And the reason it's the most obvious is because it works. Like you're putting a piece of paper in someone's hand who has shown you that they are willing to put money towards this game, right? Like that's in terms of audience, that's the ideal audience. Like, you know, this person's willing to spend money on this property. Like you couldn't ask for a better marketing thing. There's a number of other different things that you can do in terms of cross promotion. So you can look at um, stuff, websites like Board Game Geek, um, places where people talk about physical board games um, and then, you know, talk about the digital version, like, involve it in the conversation make sure that they're aware that it's an option you know it's it's not a rival or a competitor they should see it as an option because you know especially in 2020 uh it's not that easy to get four people around a table to play a game but if you can play online or you can play against the ai it's another option right so that's how we tend to present it. We try and present it as another option to complement the physical game that you already have. So has 2020 gotten easier for you all? Because like you just said, it's not like we can all sit down and you know, play a board game like we used to, are you seeing, I mean, the industry as a whole has seen a spike in sales. Mm, yeah. But is what you all are seeing along those lines or is it like a little higher because this is something people have always done anyway, or is it a little lower because they're playing all these other games? I think in general, uh, for us, I think it's a little bit higher than the industry average, I'd say. Like you said, Everyone's going up because, you know, you can't go outside right now. I've bought more video games uh, over the last year than I really should have. Um, but I think for us, we've generally seen our averages increase in terms of like weekly revenue, monthly revenue. Um, and then I've talked to some other people to see if they've seen the same. Uh, and in terms of their revenue, it's definitely gone up. But I think ours has taken a little bit more. Um, and I think that is partly because you have these people who, you know, it's their Friday board game night, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's their, the thing they do on the weekend. And all of a sudden, if you can't do that physically, it's like, well, there's a digital version. I'll give that a go. All right, we've got a great question from, from Chase over on YouTube. There's just something I hadn't even thought of. So excellent question, Chase. So how does contracting for hiring a composer work for bringing board games to digital? Because that's a whole aspect of this that we haven't touched on. You mm -hmm. don't have audio in, in a board game, and you, but you have an opportunity with a digital game to create this atmosphere. So how does that work for you all? So luckily, 
I'm so well equipped to answer this question because like two weeks ago, I did an interview with our in-house composer uh, about how he made the music for Fury of Dracula. As soon as I saw this question come up, I was like, oh, so good. I'm so ready for this. <laughs> it's a layup. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, so yeah, you don't have a soundtrack and you don't have sound effects for a physical board game, right? So what our composer tends to do is it's all about the theme for the game. Like no one plays board games that are just pieces of paper being pushed around. Like you're getting it partly because the theme is interesting. So for our composer, it's taking the time to look at, okay, what's the theme for this game? How does the game state change over time? And how can I represent that in the music? So for example, in Fury of Dracula, you have Dracula's influence and that's how Dracula tracks how close he is to winning the game. So if it goes all the way up to 13, Dracula wins. So our composer sat down and was like, okay, well, I wanna get down different tracks for different levels of influence because as the game gets more tense, as it gets more closer to Dracula winning, you need to make sure that the music reflects that. So the music that you have at influence level two is going to be, you know, still creepy, still has that murder mystery, noir, um, old Victorian feel to it. But it's going to be way less intense than when Dracula's at influence level 12 and is literally one step away from winning the game. So it's taking themes and also taking the tone of the game. So in terms of contracting or hiring, we don't need to worry about that because we've got our own in-house guy, uh, which is really nice. He does work on his own, which he says has his own ups and downsides. Uh, because he's working on his own, it means that he has complete control over the soundtrack from start to finish. Like he can make sure that it's all fits in. Um, also because he's working on his own, it's kind of hard to judge because he's like, oh, well, I know music theory, I knew a music composer. No one else in the company knows, so I have to go based on what they think. <laughs> you can't tell me this sound sucks. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, a thing that we've started doing recently, especially with Fury of Dracula, is we've released the soundtrack separately on Steam. And the reason that we've done this is obviously it um, allows people who really like the soundtrack to grab it. But also we know that people will still play the physical board game. We really want to offer that as a, yeah. if you're playing Fury of Dracula and you want some music in the background, this is music that's been specifically designed to fit with the theme of Fury of Dracula. Like, I've played countless ses sessions of Dungeons and Dragons where the DM has been like, all right, I've got the perfect music for this situation. We want to help people with that, right? Like, even if you're not playing the digital game, we want to give you the right music for that situation. And that's what our composer's done. So how, it's probably, I mean, y'all just launched yesterday. So <laughs> I think you're going to have, I'm going to ask this and you can look at me crazy if I do it. Is there any sort of data that you've got on the conversion, right? How many people, what percentage of people who buy the game, buy the soundtrack separately? Uh, I know the figures in my head. So give me a second to do a quick maths. Uh, I think it'll probably be around 10, a little bit less than 10%. That's higher than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Generally, we're looking at people who play free games and then actually spend money on them is somewhere like 2 or 3%. And so a 10% conversion is actually really, really good. Yeah. So you've done Talisman on multiple platforms. And I'm going to assume that eventually Fury will be the same because that's the way the industry goes. Are there platforms that you have found are that are better or worse for, you know, these types of games? I mean, for us, it kind of depends on the game. 
because there's certain board games that you are happy to sit down and play for ages. Like Talisman and Fury of Dracula are really good examples. It's the kind of game where if you're sitting down to play one of those games, you kind of know what you're getting in for. You're going to sit down, have a complete session in about hour, an hour and a half, and it'll be great. Uh, there's other games like Cat Lady, another game that we've done, which is a card drafting game. And each game of that takes about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. And the shorter games do massively, massively so much better on mobile. It seems obvious, but <laughs> people much more likely to play a game that lasts 15 minutes on their mobile than they are to play a game that lasts an hour on their mobile. I mean, we still have people that play Talisman on mobile. We're still happy to support that. But Talisman <laughs> and Fury of Dracula. We support you. That's the... Um, because it, it is. I mean, that, like I said, Ticket to Ride was a great one for you know, a laptop, not a laptop, but um, a tablet because you mm. have like a little version of the board, you know, in your hand there. Uh, but it is, it's like nobody wants to sit down and spend an hour and a half staring at their phone. Unless it's no. like a nine-year-old playing Fortnite, but that's <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we're going to be competing with Fortnite anytime soon. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it, it is very interesting and this is one of the things when you reached out i was like oh my god yeah let's talk about this on the show because this is you know mm -hmm. fantastic stuff and, and this is one of the things i want to emphasize to a lot of the developers out there if you are wanting to get something going for a first game re reaching out to these board game folks are a great way to do it i mean we did that uh with a couple of clients several years ago they were starting some vr stuff and and I said, well, what do you want to do? And they're like, oh, there's this game from Reiner. And I'm not even going to try to say his last name because I always brutalize it. But <laughs> the very, very famous board game designer. And I was like, all right, well, let's go get it. And <laughs> they looked at me and they're like, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm going to call him. And we reached out. And it was one of the things that he does so many games that mm -hmm. he was just like happy to see it come to VR. And it was a great way to do it. I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of aspects of game development that get solved for you. You don't have to figure out the rules. The rules are already there. Yeah, exactly. You know, figure out a lot of the art because like you said, they're going to give you a lot of the art assets. It's a yeah. really, I'm not going to say easy, but it's a good way to get in the door and it's a marketing boost too because now it's not just you marketing the game you've got the publisher behind you or the, the game publisher pushing it to their fans as well mm -hmm. so yeah that, that's I've, I've always been a big fan of it so here's my warhammer question Cal, <laughs> one is there a publisher out there who has not done a warhammer game at this point, um, hmm. I imagine they're pretty easy to work with because they've got this down to a science. I mean, we, we oh, yeah. pick about about how many Warhammer games are out there, but the reality is they're out there because they sell, you know. And so, how is it different working with a big operation like that versus you know a smaller one like the like the team behind Cat Lady? So, yeah, I think the most obvious thing is, you know, they've been, they've done this before, right? Like they, they know the process. They know exactly what they, they're doing. Also, by the way, uh, I don't think Nintendo have ever made a Warhammer game, but I'd like them to. Yeah, like they have a whole approval process that you can go through. They have someone in the studio that, you talk to directly, like I have one contact uh, that I talk to about 90% of the things that I want to run past their marketing team, uh, run past their approval team. Like anytime we need to do a press release, anytime we need to do a developer blog, um, obviously they want to make sure that whatever we're doing represents the brand well. So we'll make sure that's all sent off. They will approve it. 
if they've got any issues, they're always really clear about what they want to change. So, you know, it is nice to work with someone who, like, I don't know if there's anyone out there, uh, license-wise, who has so much experience talking to game developers and making sure what we're doing fits with what they want than Games Workshop. And yeah, generally they're just really, really cool to work with. Um, and that's not to say that the smaller studios and the smaller board game makers and publishers are hard to work with. Um, it just means that there's normally a little bit more communication. Like we'll ask them if we want to, like how we want to set the store page up. Um, how we want to make sure that we're targeting the demographics who are being targeted for the physical board game. And sometimes it's you're required to be a bit clearer with, okay, look, here's what we actually need. Do you care about how this looks? Do you care about how this looks? Like how granular do you want to be? Whereas because we've got such a good relationship with Games Workshop, we know what they'll care about. We know what they don't want to see and we know what they do want to see. So that speeds it up a lot. Like when I first joined Nomad, it was like, okay, I need to know exactly how big the Games Workshop logo needs to be in any promotional material where it's being used. But once I know that, it's never going to be an issue again. Like it still needs to be approved, but it speeds up the process because you know what they want. It, it, you, you always have, a, especially with any license, you always have a lot of questions up front and then it gets a lot easier as time goes on. Uh, we got another question from Punk This Studios over on Twitch. It says, do you have board game developers working alongside your team's development for the digital ad adaptation? And you know, the other side of that is how often are there things that you you have to change to adapt it to digital? Not really, to be honest. And I think that's, it's not because we don't want to. Uh, I think that's more due to the fact that the games that we've picked up and happen to have been working on aren't being actively worked on at the same time. Like we normally come to a game after it's already been released. Like I don't think we've ever worked on a game um, as it's being made or produced or hasn't already been released. Um, kind of different for expansions. Um, oftentimes we'll catch up with the um, developers for the physical board game because they'll say, look, it's not out yet, but six months down the line, we're planning on adding something to the game that takes it from having four players to six players. And we'll sit there and go, okay, well, we kind of need to make sure that what we're doing fits with what your future plans are then. Because if we develop it to be a perfect adaptation of the base game, and then they do an expansion that completely changes it, really takes off, and we go, we didn't know that was coming. We kind of can't develop for that without having to redo the game entirely that just leads to loads of mess down the line. So it tends to be just good communication as opposed to working actively together. Um, and of course, we'll give them feedback on, you know, a good example in Talisman is there is a ton, a ton of cards and effects that specify that you may do something as opposed to you must do something. And in the in the physical board game, that's fine because it doesn't take any extra time. But in the digital version, because you have to make sure that the player has the choice, you need to make sure that that is a active thing that the player needs to press. So for example, if you can roll two dice instead of one when you attack, 99% of the time, you're gonna wanna do two dice. But because that's a may, technically, if we're trying to recreate the digital version one-to-one, -one, we need to make sure that that's optional. But then that adds an extra thing. So we then need to go to the talisman designers and say, look, we know you've put this as a may, 
But 99.9% .9 of the time, it doesn't make a difference. However, if we keep it as a optional thing, where you every single time you attack, you have to press another button, that will add an extra 10 minutes onto a game session. Like, it'll really get annoying. Can we just automatically do it? So we do check with the board game designers at that point, because most of the time they'll say, yeah, I didn't realize that this was going to become a digital version. I didn't realize this was cause issues for you down the line. Um, so feel free to change that. It doesn't take away the spirit of the game. That's interesting. You don't really think about how adding one additional click to something mm -hmm. makes that big of a difference, but it does. And, it, and for the player, it gets annoying as hell sometimes too. It's like, I just want to always do this. So give me an option that just says, yep. I'm always going to do this. Yeah, but that's the thing, like, because you're taking a physical board game and turning it into a digital version, there are things that when you're designing a physical board game, you don't need to consider like, oh, that won't add any extra time at all. It's just there in case you want to use it. But when you have to implement that digitally, it can have loads of different negative effects. So especially with something like Talisman that you've been publishing forever, and it does you know, have a whole lot of expansions and card packs and things that go with it. Have you all played around with basically playtesting new stuff before, you know, they go and print up a bunch of, of the physical versions at all? Um, so sometimes they'll get in touch with us and let us know and get our opinion on stuff um, because most of the stuff that comes out, we have no problem of turning that digital. Like I said, we're pretty good at it at this point. Um, but if they're trying to do something where it looks like it might be a bit of an issue to turn it into a digital version, we'll talk to them, right? We'll say, okay, well, what are you trying to achieve here? Is there a way that you can do this um, digitally? Like most of the games that we convert, I don't think any of them have like tests of skill uh, or like dexterity checks, um, which would be like flicking something at something on the table, which is totally fine physically because it's like a physical test. But when you ask a player to do that digitally, it creates a whole realm of issues in terms of like, well, you know, if you figure out how to do it perfectly every single time digitally, it's no longer a test, right? Like, but Again, it's, it's one of those things that you don't necessarily think of until you get knee deep in there in these things. And then it goes, so, yeah. you know, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left. And so if you've got questions, whether no matter where you are out there, uh, pop them into your chat or the comments on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, wherever. And we'll go through them with Tom and get everything answered for you. So yeah. here's the big question. If, if you had free reign, what's the game that you want to bring to digital? If I had free reign, I think it would probably be Betrayal at House on the Hill. Didn't they do that? Did they not do that? Hmm. Am I, am I going to show myself up by finding out that there's a digital version of Betrayal at House on the Hill? <laughs> so I can tell you from my own experience that it has at least been talked about. And that's why, that's why I brought it up. I thought that was, I thought somebody had done that, but I guess they haven't. Oh, I think it's, it's on tabletop simulator. So someone's put it together as a tabletop simulator version, but like a dedicated version of Betrayal at House on the Hill. I think you could do so much with that and not necessarily just a straight port. Like I think you could do so much with like adding new betrayals and um, adding stuff that you could only do digitally. Like that game has 
so much replay value and so much design space in what it is that if we just made a version of Betrayal at the House in the Hill that was really modular, really open for us to play around with it, I think we could make so much cool stuff. I mean, also, I'd really like to make anything uh, Star Wars. I don't care what board game it is. I really want to make something Star Wars. <laughs> you, you want to do Star Wars Monopoly, don't you? We, I, I understand. That's I'd do Star Wars Monopoly in, in a heartbeat. I'd still do it. <laughs> I have it. I think we've played it once. It's uh, mm -hmm. not really. It's it's still Monopoly at the end of the day. So when you've got games, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's one of those things that's Among Us brings it up. You know, there are versions of Among Us that have voice chat. There are versions like on mobile where you have to type things in. When you're looking at games, especially, I don't know the term for it, but the werewolf style, you know, betrayer mm -hmm. games. How can you effectively tweak that to make it engaging and give you that same sense on a digital sense? Because you can't like look at your friends and all the time offer some impassioned response about why they saw you standing next to a dead body. You know, it's yeah. How when, do you typically when you're when you're relying so much on you know, the subtle cues and calling people out and seeing people do things. Like, honestly, it's really hard. Like, it's doable, but it's really hard. And something that we've learned over six years of doing digital board games and taking their digital board games and adapting them is sometimes there's just games that don't transition well to a digital version like you can try as hard as you want but sometimes like there's there's something that you lose by not being there physically with someone and there's games that can work around that like there's plenty of games where it's more focused on the game than the person-to-person -person interaction but there's a couple of games that i've seen where i know the physical game works really well when you're playing around a table and then they've turned it into a digital version and it just doesn't work. And I think knowing when to say, look, this game's just not going to work. There's some fundamental issues that mean that, sure, technically it can be transitioned to digital, but you're going to lose the spirit and the fun of the game. And knowing when to call it and say, look, this just isn't going to work. Um, is something that we've learned over the six years. So I'm sitting here looking at a couple of things on uh, online, and I'm probably going to end up buying stuff. Thanks to that. <laughs> looking at Wingspan that we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. so, I mean, that's a minimum $60 game for the board, the, the physical yep. version. It, it's like 20 bucks for digital. Are there price points that you've seen that work better? Is it one of those things that, you know, it needs to be a percentage or it needs to be close to the physical game. Or is it just like, hey, look, if you charge more than $20, $25 for a board game, for a digital version, it just doesn't do anything. It doesn't sell as well. How do you go about figuring out pricing structures? I mean, $20 does tend to be the sweet spot. Um, that's where Fury of Dracula is right now. Um, did quite a lot of research into, you know, what are our competitors charging? Um, but it also depends on the features that you have in there. So, for example, um, Gloomhaven is a game that costs... <laughs> the physical game costs an arm and a leg. Like, I, don't, I can't remember how much it is, but the physical game is, like, Run, nuts. Um a hundred to a hundred and twenty-five dollars. Yeah, uh, and I think the digital version is still around twenty quid, maybe thirty dollars. Uh, I'll look. Yeah, that's the other thing when it comes to. Yeah, it's twenty-five bucks. Yeah, so even that, they've still sort of gone a little bit above that sweet spot, but not by a huge amount. And I think it's not necessarily just oh well take the cost of the physical game and then take 
divide it by three and see what that comes out to. I don't think it necessarily works like that because, you know, that would put Gloomhaven at a 50 quid game, which but it's might, might get there, but it's a bit hard to. But games that are on the cheaper side, um, you can definitely go below that $20 sweet spot. So, for example, Cat Lady, uh, I think the physical game for that must be like $10, possibly even less, because it's just a pack of cards. Um, so the digital game reflects that. Um, I think Love Letter is another one where there's a digital adaptation that's cheaper as well, because you can get a copy of Love Letter for 15 bucks, something like that. I got a free copy of it because my buddy's family had accidentally marked one of the cards and they yeah. knew it at that point, but it, it ruined the card game for them. <laughs> they're, they're like, well, you haven't played it yet. It'll be fine. But you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're talking about, it takes you all about a year to do one of these. And, you know, you, how many, how big is your team again? Because you said you had like 40 people. Uh, no, not forty. We're we're around about like twenty or so. Um, so we're all yeah, we're all working from home at the moment as well. Um, so we're all a bit disjointed. But yeah, there's around twenty of us total. That's a sizable development budget. You know, mm-hmm. 20, twenty people for a year, especially in the UK where you know you've got the pound versus everything else. How deeply is there? Is there a way to go in? And do a PL statement of profit loss to look and see, you know, what your sales projections are going to be. Yeah. So we've got a, uh, a good um, finance team who do tend to look at, um, okay, here's what we're projected to sell. Here's what uh, we've done in the past for digital games. And of course, the big benefit that we have is that a lot of, board game publishers will give us details of their physical sales. So we can look at that information and say, okay, well, you know, this game sold 100,000 copies physically. If we look at the average player of that, the average person that put money towards that, how likely are they to buy the digital version? You know, what, what percentage of audience is there out there? So there's, I'm not the finance guy, so, (laughs) but there's a lot of complicated maths that goes into, okay, if we release this now, what's the projection? Um, How well do we know that it's done physically compared to other games that we've released where we know how that's done physically? So for example, we know how many copies the physical version of Mystic Veil sold, and we know how many copies the physical version of Fury of Dracula sold. So we can then extrapolate that to be like, okay, well, you know, it's a different audience, but roughly it stays the same maths. So except not the finance guy, but we managed to make it work. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, also something to something to point out is that uh, we have a lot of expansions and smaller content that takes less development time. Uh, So that's a very good source of revenue for us uh, because that won't take the full year and that'll be more of an ongoing uh, source of income. So we have loads of different pieces of DLC for Talisman um, that always sells really well because people want to pick and choose uh, what parts of the board game they experience. So that's how we sort of keep things going while we're working on a much bigger project. So how is, is the conversion rate that you see still around that 10% or is it, I would imagine it's way higher. Oh, just a, just so that's the percentage of people who bought the soundtrack for uh, Fury of Dracula after yeah. buying the full game. So what sort of, conversion rate do you see on average for expansions for these games after they bought the the original? So we, it depends on the expansion, but for example, for Talisman, we have a really high attach rate for um, a lot of our DLC. Like some of our DLC has something like a 
40%, 30% attach rate. And that's multiple pieces of DLC where near like a quarter, 30%, 40% of people buy the base game and then go, okay, I know that I need to get this. I'm going to get this as well. So our attach rates are actually really good. So yeah, the, the people watching can't see me grinning like a <laughs> right now, but there's a reason there. So one of the people that, that have listened to this show and seen it have heard me talk about the cycles that this industry goes through. And, and no matter what changes, what comes up at the end of the day, there are certain aspects of games that never change. Back in the day, late 90s, mid 90s, early 2000s, when digital did not exist and we were shoving everything in boxes and putting it mm -hmm. on retail shelves, do you know what the attachment rate was for an expansion to a, a game that sold well enough? No idea. <laughs> 30 to 35 percent. Okay. It was always the number, you know, if yeah, the game always enough to justify it you know, justify an expansion pack. Mm -hmm. The expansion packs at retail, and I don't know about these days on, on digital, I'm sure we could look it up, but it's the same. It's still the same. It's that yep. 30, 35% of people. That is amazing. I was kind of wow. hoping that was the answer, but that, you know, because <laughs> it is, it's like, it, yeah. people ask me, that's the question I get a lot. It's like, what has changed in the industry? And I'm like, well, a whole lot of shit's changed, but, a lot of stuff is very it has it. It's it's still the same, you know, day in and day out. So that's that's awesome. Just glad to see that. All right. So <laughs> we Tom's got you know life and, and things to deal with because it's it's late yep. night, you know, his time. If you've got a question, toss it out, you know, quickly and so we'll get it answered. Um, but he's also on our Discord server, so you can totally, you know, cyber stalk in there yep. at discord.gg slash indie game business we've got over 2,000 industry professionals on there now and that's just staggering to me so all right cool. so you mentioned that you all are are obviously distributed like pretty much everybody else is but i know europe's going back into more of a formal lockdown mm -hmm. do you see your studio going back to an in-office set up or are, do you think you all will stay distributed? I think we will go back to an in-office setup, but it's going to be different. I think our approach to working from home has fundamentally changed because before it was like, it was the assumption, right? Everyone needs to come into the office. That's how it should work. But after a year of everyone working from home, that's not the assumption anymore. We know that it can work. And like speaking for myself, I live on my own currently. And, you know, that's totally fine majority of the time. But I think like three, four months into lockdown of not being able to go to the office, I was like, all right, I'm starting to get a bit of cabin fever now. I'm starting to get a bit stir crazy. So for me personally, I still like the option of being able to go into the office. I still like the option of being able to go in. I still go in on a Monday. Um, we've actually opened the office up back up. Um, but we have one uh, QA lead. Uh, he goes into the office every single day. But that's because he needs to test on 20 different things. Yeah, so he can't, he can't have that in his house. Otherwise, he'd have no room to live. So I like just going to the office on a Monday and the rest of the week, I tend to work from home. But I think for us, it's going to be having that flexibility and having that understanding that certain people will want to work from the office and certain people will want to work from home. And as long as they're doing their work, that's totally fine. That's it. I always ask because I'm curious. I mean, I've been running a, a distributed company for 13 years now and so it's like it's not that much different yeah I, nothing I, changes <laughs> I, I still i have my office completely separate from the house i still come down do my work now the difference is like yesterday we did a webinar and i had a nine-year-old coming in and out the door because he was <laughs> at school and that meant he could play on the new xbox and i was like yep it doesn't get the out <laughs> So yeah, I bought Spider-Man Miles Morales nice. as a diversion, basically. I'm like, hey, it's a, 
It's a business expense. Go play that. Uh, (laughs) Tom, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is very interesting to hear, you know, some of these very specialized you know, parts of the industry and, and how you all work and, and that sort of stuff. So um, everyone out there, you know, feel free, you know, join us on a myriad of social networks. Just search for Indie Game Business. You'll find us. Our Discord server is discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. And our seventh digital conference is coming up mm-hmm. in a few weeks, actually. And so we've already got a lot of speakers lined up. We got a lot of sessions. We're going to have publishers. As always, it costs you nothing. It is 100% free to come and hear and participate in the sessions. The only thing you have to pay for is the business pass if you want to use you know, the business meetings. And even then, it's only 50 bucks. We don't charge you hundreds of dollars like some of these other conferences do. We want you to yeah. learn. But you know, hopefully, Tom, you all will be around because you know I would love to have you all there and we can absolutely talk about that later, yep. but I'll be lurking on the discord. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. This is awesome. It's all right. <laughs> now I'm motivated to play something. Like mm-hmm. I mean, all, all this weekend, I'm going to be tuned into uh, all of our social media and keeping an eye on everything anyway, because we've just launched. So yeah, me anything to occasionally wonderful. pop in there. <laughs> well, good luck, man. And cheers, thanks very much. And thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week. Mm. You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash indie game business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck, finding a publisher and more. Remember, it's discord.gg slash indie game business. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.